Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm your producer, Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Recently, Rob completed a teaching series entitled Save, Sing, and Share the Hymns. This course will teach you how the book of Psalms was arranged and motivate you to create a personal hymn book inside your mind. You'll also journey alongside a young music minister as Rob guides him through 60 classic hymns we should never lose. This unique course includes a downloadable guide to the book of Psalms, live music samples of select hymns, and a bonus interview with worship professor Vernon Whaley. For a limited time, we're offering this nine-session online course at a 50% discount. Visit robertjmorgan.com and click on the Courses link to find and enroll in this self-paced study using any computer or mobile device. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Welcome back today to our study of the book of Acts. Maybe you've noticed that from week to week, the presentation is a little bit different. I'm working my way through the book of Acts personally, and so I've been preparing sermons that I've preached in a public gathering, and sometimes we capture the audio from that and use that for the podcast. And other days, such as today, I'm just sitting right here in my study with my Bible open, and I'm talking to you, uh, and just imagining that I'm sitting down and talking to you as though we were having a conversation over a cup of coffee. Uh, And the subject we're coming to today, the passage begins with Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. And it's a very important passage, the last half of the book of Acts in chapter 5, because it tells us how Christians and how the church is to interact with the government when there are disputed areas in which um, we come into collision with one another. Now, this is very important for us to realize right now. I talked to a pastor yesterday who told me that his church was served last week with a cease and desist order because they are having worship services and public gatherings in contradiction to the governor's ban because of the COVID virus. And while the casinos can be open and the strip clubs can be open and there can be mobs in the street, uh, the government says that churches in his state cannot legally meet indoors. And he's having services anyway. All across the country, there are churches right now who are meeting bravely in defiance to governmental orders. I think in many cases, they're doing it very carefully and according to proper methods of hygiene. But nevertheless, it puts the church into conflict with the state. And we're going to see more and more of this, especially in this woke culture with critical race theory and the um, new administration coming in determined to push an agenda of um, LBGQ alphabetized rights and the critical race theory that is dominating much of the thinking of the secular left. And as they want to impose those implications and the theories coming from them and the laws stemming from them upon churches and upon Christians, then more and more we're going to find ourselves in conflict with our government. So what do we do? Well, this passage gives us here some uh, clues to knowing how to navigate these treacherous waters. So the background is the church in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost had been growing. And in chapter 3, Peter healed a lame man. 
and a great crowd gathered because of that, and it upset the authorities that he was preaching to this crowd. So Peter and John were hauled before the Jewish ruling council. They were told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter's response was, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. He goes back to the Christians and they pray together. The place is shaken by the power of the Holy Spirit and they speak the word of God with boldness. Then we have a little parenthesis where we're told some internal information about the church, how they are generous and they share their possessions with one another. And then Ananias and Sapphira, that story is told. And then we get back to the fact that the church is growing very quickly. And chapter 5, verse 16 says that crowds gathering also from the towns around Jerusalem brought their sick and those tormented by evil spirits and all of them were healed. So great crowds and numbers are growing. So now we come to chapter 5, verse 17. And I'd really love it if you're able to, if you will open your Bible and study along with me. It may be you can't do it right now, but... Uh, uh, but if so, I think it's always helpful. It says, chapter 5, verse 17, Then the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. Let's take a moment and discuss these Sadducees. This was a denomination within Judaism, or we could also say it was a political party within Judaism. The word Sadducee itself is a mystery. This is a word that came out of the intertestamental time period between the Old and New Testaments, and there's a number of theories as to how this denomination or this political party within Judaism got its start and got its name, but we don't know for sure. Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote for the Romans but was alive in the first century and gives us some very interesting information that um, coincides time-wise with the Bible, suggests that in between the Old and the New Testaments, during the days of the Maccabees, three schools of thought emerged within Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. These were sort of a combination of religious denominations and political parties. Well, one interesting aspect of Sadduceeism is that they really did not believe in very much uh, in terms of anything ultimate. They rejected the concept of eternal life. The Sadducees believed that when the soul, that when the body died, the soul perished, that there was nothing beyond the grave. They also denied the existence of angels. They didn't believe in the last judgment. They didn't believe in divine providence. They didn't believe in a coming Messiah. Back in college, we used to say jokingly that that's how they got their name. They didn't believe in anything in eternal life, and so they were sad, you see. That's sort of a way to remember this stance by the Sadducees. But another thing about them is that they were aristocratic and wealthy. They tended to be the aristocratic, wealthy, ruling class and most of them were clustered in Jerusalem, and the power base was the high priesthood. It's because they were primarily in Jerusalem that we really don't hear that much about the Sadducees and the four Gospels, because most of our Lord's ministry was outside of Jerusalem. He would come to Jerusalem for the festival days and the feast days, but until he came the last week of his life and really spent time in powerful opposition with the ruling class, 
uh, during Passion Week in Jerusalem, we do not hear a great deal about the Sadducees in the Gospels. Uh, we hear more about the Pharisees because they were out all over the country. They were more conservative in their theology. And in the book of Acts, the Pharisees are the people who tend to come to Christ, uh, despite all of the trouble they gave the Lord in the Gospels. But the Sadducees ruled in Jerusalem. They were very hostile to Jesus and to the apostles. They didn't believe in eternal life or in any of the things the gospel stood for, and their power base was with the high priesthood, Caiaphas and Annas and such. And these were the high priests in Israel during the time of Jesus and in the book of Acts. And you may know that in 1990, outside of Jerusalem, the tomb was discovered of Caiaphas and the high priestly family. And so this became uh, historically verified by archaeology. So the, this is the, 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 the political group that now is confronting the apostles. And it says in verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, the angel of the Lord appeared and opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. One thing that strikes me is how often angels appear in the book of Acts. Now, I'm always startled with how often angels appear throughout the Bible. I think we uh, take angels for granted. I've written a couple of books about angels and have studied this subject as thoroughly as I know how in the Scripture. And angels really populate the pages of the Bible. And I think they're much more involved than we know in our own lives. And I think they're much more involved in our work for the Lord and in our churches. And as evidence of that, I'll give you some of the examples here in the book of Acts. In the early church, when angels show up, the first time is, well, we hardly get into the book of Acts. Jesus ascends up to heaven, and the disciples are looking up in spellbound astonishment. And it says, two strangers dressed in white clothing appeared suddenly near them and said, you men of Galilee, why is it you're standing up gazing into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken up from you will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And this is apparently a description of angels. And then we have this appearance of the angel who busted the apostles out of jail. In chapter 8, it was an angel that told Philip to go down to the Gaza Road where he met the Ethiopian eunuch. In chapter 10, an angel appeared to Cornelius, telling him to send for Peter because the full church in its globalized form is about to be created in Caesarea. In chapter 12, an angel got Peter out of jail, and it's one of the most comical and, and visual stories in the book of Acts. At the end of the same chapter, it was an angel that struck Herod dead, and then in chapter 27, an angel appeared to Paul on the storm-tossed ship in the Mediterranean during Paul's ill-fated voyage to Rome. So here we have a book full of angels who are working and participating with the apostles in the building up of the church. And I think there's more than we know of that taking care of today. So the angel got them out of jail, and in verse 12, or in verse 20 rather, he says, go stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. That's the way salvation was described. That's the way the angel 
understood the impact the gospel has on us. It is, it is giving us new life. So apparently it was late at night. The apostles, I guess, went home and tried to get a little sleep, or maybe they were too excited. But verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. Now, the word Sanhedrin here simply means the assembly. And this was the Jewish Congress. It was, again, both religious and political, and it was the highest legal authority in Israel for the Jewish people under the domination of Rome. Ultimate control, you know, was with Rome and with the governor, with Pontius Pilate and the others who were stationed over the province of Palestine. And so Rome was the real controlling power, but they allowed the Jewish people to have a certain measure of self-government. And so the Sanhedrin was the highest level the Jews had of self-governing, and it was their kind of Congress. Uh, Luke, in fact, describes it here as the full assembly of the elders of Israel. They apparently met in an ornate room in the temple complex. Uh, that, again, I think comes from Josephus or maybe from some ancient Jewish documents, and we're told that the members sat in a semicircle, and it's commonly thought there were about 70 of them. So verse 22, but on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find the apostles there. So they went back and reported, we have found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. So this was a real miracle. Here the apostles were placed in the jail. The jail was locked and guards had been standing at the door all night long, but the angel came and somehow invisibly got those apostles out. And on hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Now, of course, they didn't believe in angels, so they must have thought that there was some kind of conspiracy among the guards or the uh, police force in Jerusalem, and they were wondering what is going on. But before they could begin to figure it out, verse 25, then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. I wish that I could have seen Caiaphas' face at that moment. And so that time the captain went with his officers and they brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The church, the early church here, the Jewish Christians had a great deal of favor in the eyes of the people. So it says in verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Now, here's what he said, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. That's going back to chapter 4, after the healing of the lame man, when Peter preached and the, the apostles, well, Peter and John specifically, were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were commanded not to speak or to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And that's when Peter said, well, I don't know whether uh, it seems right or not to you, but as for us, we cannot help but speak what we've seen and heard. So 
So the uh, Sanhedrin now for the second time was putting up with Peter and John and the apostles. And they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So for the high priest and for members of the Sanhedrin, it was both personal and it was political. And that's when Peter makes an important declaration. He says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than human beings. And that is the Christian's basis for civil disobedience. Now, the Bible tells us repeatedly that we should be good citizens to the extent that it's possible we should be good citizens. For example, turn over with me to the book of Romans in chapter 13. The Apostle Paul said, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. In other words, God is the governor of the entire universe, and all authority is derived by him, but he created governmental structures or the potential for governmental structures on this planet so that there would be order rather than chaos and anarchy. And so we should respect that. In Romans 13, continuing in verse 2, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended, for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for the rulers will not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. Nevertheless, therefore, it is important to submit to the authorities, not just because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that governmental authorities are God's servants. They represent his desire to have a well-governed world rather than chaos and anarchy. So we would say in our nation, then the president and the Senate and the Congress and the judicial system and the governors and the city council, those people are God's servants. They may not necessarily be Christians. Certainly in Paul's day, when he was talking here about the governing authorities, he was talking about uh, a very brutal Roman empire with uh, people like Nero and Claudius uh, and many different procurators and, and governors who were not Christians. Um, but he said they are God's servants. In other words, God has ordained that there be governing channels on this planet, in this world, so as to enable peace uh, and order to reign so that the gospel can be freely proclaimed. First Timothy chapter 2 says very largely the same thing. It tells us to pray for those in authority over us and to pray that there will be peace so the gospel can be spread. And First Peter chapter 2, verse 17, Peter himself, um, who is the one that 
uh, we're reading about here in the book of Acts, but many years later, Peter said, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So overall, the teaching of the Bible is that as Christians, we should be the best citizens there are in our land. We should have a good relationship with the government. We should uh, respect and pray for those in authority over us. But there is one caveat, and that is here in Acts verse 29 of this chapter 5. We must obey God rather than human beings. When the government tries to force us to violate biblical practices, we must obey God rather than men. In other words, we have a biblical obligation to commit civil disobedience. When the government tries to force us to do things or to say things in direct opposition of those tenets that we hold so dearly based upon biblical teachings. Now, up to this point, many of us in America have not had to deal with this a great deal. In many nations of the world, people have had to deal with it. But here in America, we have had a Judeo-Christian framework in which it's been relatively easy to be a Christian, and the Christian and the government are not often on opposite sides. But now all of that is changing with the secularization and with the new vocabulary that's come into our world in 2020 with the woke mentality and, and the um, uh, critical race theory and, and the agenda from the um, uh, homosexual community that is seeking not only to gain rights for themselves, but protections against Christians in any way, even in some cases reading scriptures that may offend them in some way. There are laws being proposed right now in Western Europe that would say if you read a particular passage in the Bible that would be offensive to the gay lobby, then you are in danger of committing a hate crime, and you can be imprisoned for that. There, I think there is a very good possibility that in the future the government will remove here in America the vested authority of ministers to officiate weddings unless they agree to officiate weddings that are morally reprehensible to us. And so we're entering into a... Um, a world now where Acts chapter 7 and verse 29 is very important to us, and we must become very familiar with this verse. And with the principle and the thinking and the logic behind it, we must obey God rather than human beings. We are good citizens who pray for our government and respect those in authority over us, but we cannot disobey the teachings of Scripture through the coercion of the government. We must obey God rather than human beings, even if that leads to peaceful civil disobedience. And so Peter went on to say in verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you kill by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior so that he might bring Israel to repentance and that he might forgive their sins. So Peter now is more aggressive than ever. He isn't quite as uh, diplomatic as he was back in chapter 4. He said, you killed this man, Jesus Christ, by hanging him on a cross. 
but God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. And then he says something very interesting in verse 31. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Why did Jesus ascend up into heaven and take his seat at the right hand of the Father? One reason is because he ultimately is going to bring Israel to repentance, and Israel, at the time of the second coming of Christ, will be forgiven of their sins. We read about it in Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14. I'd love to go into that, but I don't want to be too diverted by it now. So verse 32 goes on to say, we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So everything that Peter said here was, well, it was punching the buttons of these Sadducees who didn't believe in any of it. And it says in verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and they wanted to put them to death. But the Sadducees didn't have the power of the death penalty. The Sanhedrin did not have the right of capital punishment. They could put people to death, but it would be as a frenzied mob, not as a judicial legal proceeding. But in the Sanhedrin, there was also some Pharisees. And the most famous Pharisee, the one who was the head of the Pharisees, was um, a rabbi and a teacher named Gamaliel, who was his most famous pupil, later would be known as Paul the Apostle. Verse 34 says, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. Even though he was a Pharisee, he had such a charisma and a stature and wisdom and maturity and gravitas about him that no matter who you were, you respected this man. And he stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the apostles be put outside for a little while. He said in verse 35, men of Israel... Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied with him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of men in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. So Gamaliel here gives two examples from what would have been to them recent Jewish history of two men who tried to lead great movements, but they both came to nothing because God wasn't in it. Therefore, he says in verse 38, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But verse 39 to me is one of the greatest verses about the church in the Bible. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, that was an unsaved Pharisee, a rabbi in the Sanhedrin. But he recognized that if this movement is from God, it is unstoppable. And verse 40 says, his speech persuaded them. So they called the apostles in and had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, they didn't kill them, but they did punish them, and this flogging was no 
simple thing to go through. As far as we can tell, this was the Jewish flogging, not the even more brutal Roman flogging, but the victim of the flogging was stripped, his hands tied to the floor, and then he was beaten 39 times with a rod slapped across his back. But it says in verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. There, you know, I, I can't say they didn't feel pain, but the emotions of the joy they had in participating with the suffering of Christ overwhelmed any sense of pain that they had. And it says in verse 42, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. Now, I think Luke uses those words very deliberately because remember, Gamaliel had said just three verses before, you will not be able to stop these men if it's from God. And so it says day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So that is the passage. Let me just wrap it up here with six very quick bullet points of application. Number one, we learn from this passage that we have more angelic help than we know. If you're a preacher, a teacher, or a life group leader, or a choir minister, or you work on a staff of a church, or you're an involved layman, you're not working alone in ways that you don't even know. There is angelic help all around you. I truly believe that when we get to heaven, we'll see how much that is true. Secondly, churches and Christians sometimes upset those who are in power. Thirdly, we should be as gracious as possible. We should be good citizens to the extent that we can be, the best citizens, honest citizens, law-abiding citizens, respectful and gracious citizens. But fourthly, we should also be prepared to commit civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience, if and when our government ever tries to coerce or order us to do things that violate the clear teachings of the Bible. Fifthly, persecution is thereby a normal part of the Christian experience. But sixthly, we simply cannot be stopped. Those are very relevant, very important lessons for today. And next time we'll go on with the next chapter, which really opens a new phase to us with the book of Acts, chapter um, um, 8, chapter rather uh, 7, as we uh, move from the uh, um, Jewish, uh, Ju uh, the Judean uh, Judaism to the Hellenistic Judaism and from there onto the world. But I hope that you have uh, benefited from our study so far of Acts chapters 1 through 5. We are uh, coming into the Christmas season, and so next week I want to do something related to Christmas, but then we'll get right back into chapter 6, and if you want to read it ahead, then that would be wonderful. This podcast is brought to you and produced by Joshua Rowe and his team at Clearly Media. It is edited by Elijah Rowe, music is by Jordan Davis. 
And for information about other resources that we have, including my one-minute daily Bible studies on social media and special courses that we're developing, as well as our written resources and the books we have available, please check out my website at robertjmorgan.com. May the Lord bless you until we meet again.